Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How did Kevin survive the curse? Probably because he had his own family. He's the only one that expressed his emotions and had a family, and expressed himself through that family, through Pam, and had his own sons. The Iron Claw is a profound film with immense tragedy. Let's break down one of A24's best films in recent years. What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today, we're going to be breaking down and reviewing the most tragic film of 2023, and that is Sean Durkin's The Iron Claw, a movie that I was not prepared for. I knew it was going to be great. I love him as a filmmaker. I'm a huge fan of his breakout movie, Martha Marcy May Marlene, so he's a talented guy. But I walked into this film expecting it, expecting it to be a wrestling biopic. You know, we've seen a couple of these before, but I was absolutely blindsided by immense tragedy and a movie that made me feel more despair than anything I've felt in a very long time. And it all came to the connection to the characters, the strong storytelling and filmmaking, and an excellent lead cast with a dominating performance from Zac Efron, the best of his career. Despair is a strong word. I wouldn't say I completely felt despair. There's a lot of family and love in this movie as well. It's dark, it's tragic, it seems unrealistic and unbelievable how much tragedy this family went through and the trauma. Obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know what we're talking about. It may be one of the most unbelievable true stories I've ever seen put in film, put into cinema. It's absurd, not to mention that, of course, we know we're going to be spoiling this movie, all, all the loss of life in the family. There's still a brother who passed away who's not in the movie because there's so much tragedy. And we'll get into the reason why Chris Von Erich was cut from the film and why his story wasn't told. But it's, it's absurd how much tragedy this family went through in the, the Von Erich curse, which I'm very excited to talk about because it's really intriguing. And... I, I knew a bit about it. You know, I, I knew about the early days of wrestling. We watched WWE and WWF and WWF when we were kids. Open up a can of whoop ass. You know, Stone Cold, Mankind, The Rock. Those were our guys. Our older brothers were a little more the era post, right after all this kind of stuff happened, the mm -hmm. early 90s, late 80s. You know, I, I think that they got us really into wrestling and wrestling was massive in the 90s. I heard the name of the Von Erichs, and I heard a little bit here and there when you'd watch episodes or, or, or live events of wrestling on TV, like SmackDown or something, or WWF Monday Night Raw. But I didn't, I didn't know too much about the Von Erich family story until the trailer came out for the A24 film, The Iron Claw, which we're talking about in this episode. And the trailer looked incredible. And I knew it was going to be I, – I had heard that it's a, a tragic story, so I went in knowing that I'd probably cry during the movie, but I did not expect to be weeping as I left the theater in just a wreck. I did not expect to be an emotional wreck. I mean, the only wrestler I heard of before we saw this film was Ric Flair, because I remember our brothers liked Ric Flair, and I had no idea about the Von Erich family. That was the only wrestler you ever heard of? In the film. Oh, in the film. Yeah. The <laughs> oh, sorry, in the in this film that I had heard gotcha. of. I was like, wait, oh, what? Yeah. We, in, we lived in the same house. <laughs> like, what are you talking about, bro? So I, I didn't know much about the Von Erichs at all, and the trailer tricked me in a good way because I thought, okay, someone's dying in this film. You could tell there's a funeral scene, but I didn't realize so many would pass away. And so it's something happened to me in this film, and we saw us in theaters actually two weeks before its initial release. We got into a fan event. No big deal. So it was like a Dolby screening, really fantastic. And uh, Sean Durkin's use of 35mm uh, film looked just unbelievable on that screen. And I really think this year, the past year of film has pushed forward a lot of filmmakers choosing that format, whether it be 35, 60 even IMAX 65 or even IMAX films. So there are a lot of major films. Four of the Best Picture nominees shot on film. I love That's that. Awesome. This this should I think this should have gotten a Best Picture nomination. We'll get into it in a little bit. But something happened to me when I watched this film. Usually, you know, I'm a big crier at movies. Yeah, like you cry. I, at I cry pretty easily at movies. <laughs> I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a baby. I'm a wimp at, at a sad you movie. You cried during Bullet Train, probably. I did. It was beautiful. No, I. <laughs> 
the only one I didn't cry at was Bullet Train. But I'm very emotional at movies. Something happened to me when I watched this film, and that's why I said despair, because I was so numb by the third act of this film. I was just numb, and my gut was wrenched, and I had just I had felt like I was experiencing that kind of grief where people feel nothing in a way, you know what I mean? Because it can be so overwhelming. And I think that ha- that's what happened to me when I saw this film where after each member of the family died, another brother, another brother, I was just like so overwhelmed with the grief and with the, with the loss that it kind of, I closed up, which doesn't really happen with me when I watch a movie. I usually I'm tears streaming and I, I like take the next week I watched Maestro and I was sobbing. But with Iron Claw, I was just like a wreck internally, but I couldn't, it wasn't coming out. And then when Zac Efron finally was with his two sons on the yard, and I think it was the best moment of the film, and it's he's crying, he finally cried, and then his two sons go say, hey, what's wrong, Dad? What's going on? Why are you crying? And he goes, well, I, I used to have brothers too, but now I don't anymore. And that line just sent a shiver down my spine and then I teared up and it I, I read that Sean Durkin actually directed Zach to not cry at all until that moment and so if you look at all the grief scenes he's lying in bed or he's after the funeral or when he's sleeping in the office he's not crying at all and that's not because Zach can't cry because he can we've seen him cry many times but Sean Durkin directed him to wait until that moment in the in the backyard with the kids until he started shedding tears, and that's what happened to me. So I think what happened to me happened to the, same, happened to the character that Zac Efron played, and then that was it. But I, I felt like I was just so much that I couldn't bear the weight of all that grief, just like him. The Iron Claw tells the true story of the inseparable Von Erich brothers who made history in the intensely competitive world of professional wrestling, wrestling in the early 1980s, as well as depicting the intense tragedy in the Von Erich family curse of the many deaths involved in the family. And same with me. I did cry a little bit during one of the deaths of one of the brothers, but that ending within the backyard, throwing the football with his sons, like you will be your brother's dead. Oh my God. I, I was off. I was, the tears were running. Oh my God. For a good 10 minutes after that happened. You were a mess after the movie. Devastate me. And I feel like I connected with it. I'm sure you did really well too, because we have five brothers, just a family of all boys Similar to the Von Erich family, you know, I couldn't imagine what it would be like losing one of them, let alone four of them. And this was written and directed by Sean Durkin, and it didn't get a single nomination from a major award ceremony. On IMDb, it's a 7.9 with 30,000 ratings. Rotten Tomatoes, it's an 89% critic score. 94% audience score. Letterbox, it's a 4.1 on a budget of $15 million. It had a healthy gross at the box office of $39 million globally. And again, I think this might be the most unbelievable true story I've ever seen in my life. It's a case of truth is stranger than fiction. And if if Sean Dirk, if this was a work of fiction and Sean Durkin wrote this on spec and it was just an original screenplay, I think audiences would have been like, this is just too much. Like, there's no way this would really happen. This many suicides in the family. But then when you realize this is the reality and it's actually not as bad, it's not even as bad as it got for that family in real life. That makes it so powerful of a story when you realize this this truly did ha- did happen. And uh, Sean Durkin worked for seven years writing and producing this film into 2023 when it was finally released. So this was a big uh, undertaking for him. I think it took him a while to get the story right and to get a studio invested in it to be able to like, we can release this. Seven years is a long time to commit to a project. But it also is led by an amazing cast, which really makes the film work. Zac Efron, as we mentioned earlier. Jeremy Allen White. Coming off of his huge TV run last several years with a big film. Harris Dickinson, who's been breaking out in a big way. You last saw him in Triangle of Sadness. Super talented actor. Uh, Maura Tierney, she's been a veteran actor for years in film and television. Very, very good actor. Stanley Simmons, this was his first film. Uh, Mike Von Erich. Uh, Michael J. Harney as Bill Mercer. Holt McCallany, longtime actor. Huge role in Mindhunter, and he's been breaking out since then. And then Lily James, amazing actress as Pam who's uh, Kevin Von Erich's wife, uh, Maxwell Freedom, Brady Pierce, a few actors you've seen in Little Things here and there. Uh, and then Aaron Dean Eisenberg did a great job as Ric Flair and Kevin Anton as Harley Race. So really fantastic ensemble. I was surprised that I didn't... I was surprised when it got no Globes love and I was shocked that the ensemble didn't even get a SAG nomination. 
I thought the ensemble was just really well uh, crafted and everybody performed their roles ex- really perfectly. So the Oscar nominations, I was expecting since it got no real love outside of the Indie Awards circuit. So I think that is the reason could be because maybe it's not the right time for this kind of movie. Maybe 10 years. For year- awards, because yeah. people love it. And it's, ironic, it's odd because so many people love this movie. Yeah. It's all over social media, all over TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. People that love cinema love this movie. Letterboxd, it's massive. People are talking about it still, even though it came out months ago. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm still thinking about this movie, and we're talking about it now. It's actually interesting to do a movie review of it just like four months later. And to, it's so odd to get not see a single nomination, not a BAFTA, not a Golden Globe, not mm-hmm. an Academy Award, because the performances are exceptional. The cinematography is absurdly good. Yeah. I mean, Matthias Erdli, a Hungarian cinematographer, is a beast in this movie. Just the opening shot of the ring in the black and white, opening black and white. Beautiful. Some of the best cinematography of the entire year. Some of the best shots I've seen all year in 2023 were in the Iron Claw. The wrestling sequences were done so well, not to mention the way they filmed the arenas, as well as the really intense close-ups. I thought it was just a beautiful movie. So many great tracking shots. Just stunning cinematography. And no editing. Rec- no recognition. Yeah, no, great editing as well. The overlaps. The triple were, dissolve. Yeah, there were a few great dissolves in... The brothers dissolve with their faces, and then my favorite, one, another great dissolve is the motorcycle when when he when Carrie's driving his motorcycle after winning the championship, and it dissolves from the road, the lines on the road into his face, and it's just really great dissolve. So the editing was fantastic. So well directed too from yeah. Sean Dirk, and I'm I'm just shocked that it didn't get a single nomination. And maybe maybe you're right, it's the wrong kind of year for this kind of movie, but. It's still odd because it's so well made. I think if, if the Iron Claw came out 10 years ago, it would have gotten a lot of love. Similarly to how Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler got a lot of love when mm-hmm. that came out in 2009, I believe. Yeah, Mickey Rourke, yeah. did he win that year or he was nominated? Uh, Sean Penn won that year, yeah. but Rourke was nominated, Aronofsky was nominated. Best Picture Ever, Ever winner, Rachel, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, didn't win. Was it was nominated, nominated. Evan Rachel Wood uh, was nominated, so a ton of nominations from that film. And th- I think that this film, it's something that, in terms of Academy voters, maybe it's not something they're looking for anymore. It's not telling the right kind of story culturally that they think is important. Uh, but I think that out of the list of films that have been nominated for Best Picture, you could easily slide a few of those out and put the Iron Claw in. And also, like you said earlier, the cinematography is really strong in this film. And I think Zac Efron, I, I have a theory of why he got why he didn't get nominated. Um, so th- there's a few actors in the lead, a- lead actor race that they could easily be replaced by Zac Efron. Yeah, I could see him getting a nomination. And I, I think the reason why he didn't get nominated is, as amazing as Zac is, and this is just a theory, it's not a knock on him, it's not a knock on Sean Durkin, but I I, I think that if they included a scene in which uh, Kevin went off on his dad, if they had shared a meaty dialogue-heavy scene, could have been five to ten minutes long, but if they if they shared a, some kind of scene where they were going at it, especially after the aftermath of I would say Carrie's death, which was they had a moment where where he was like, "I told you to wait for him. I told you to look out for him." Yeah, Kevin basically beat yeah, him up. Yeah. Exactly. But that was very short, and they barely spoke to each other. It was just a couple of lines. But if they had a more impactful, lengthier scene together. And Zach was given a little bit more screen time with dialogue only. I think that Academy voters would have liked his performance more than some of the ac- other actors who got in there. So I think that if they had a scene like that, he would have more likely get gotten a nomination. But I do think that there's a few actors in the lead actor race that should probably have could be replaced by Zach Efron. Absolutely, it's an interesting point because whenever he's on screen with his father Jack or Fritz, his wrestling name. Jack is always so much more dominant mm-hmm. on screen and is a more dominant screen presence. So when he's on screen with Zach, when Z- Carrie, when Kevin, sorry, Kevin yeah. and Jack are on screen together, all you can really look at is Jack. That's yeah. an interesting point. Yeah. So I would have, it's the one thing I walked away from the film where I was like, I think that would have really propelled the film up a little, just a little bit more if Kevin took the power dynamic away from his father and basically tore him apart and tore him down. Well, there's things that Kevin did in this film, like survive the Von yeah. Eric family curse, which is something you could say that no one else did, and that was sort of a, uh, a, a way to oppose his father in a lot of ways, because his father, you could argue, is the cause of the Von Eric curse, which we'll mm-hmm. get into. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In a little bit, let's talk a little bit more in production. So musical score was done by Richard Reed Parry, who's in the rock band Arcade Fire. Oh, no way. Interesting fact. Wow. So he did the original composition for the music for the movie, as well as this movie had an awesome soundtrack, great hits and bangers from the 80s, including Don't Fear the Reaper, Blue Oyster Cult, Thank God I'm a Country Boy by John Denver, and Tom Sawyer by Rush, the best needle drop of the entire film. And Tom Sawyer actually served as Carrie Von Eric's entrance music from 1981 to 1983 it was also featured in the marketing of the film but when that dropped during obviously when they start training working out and mike puts it on in his in his bedroom to get the brothers amped up that's a great needle drop it goes into a wrestling sequence it's excellent i feel like that song is like the theme of the film in a way yeah yeah, because like you said it was in the marketing and then it was just a great moment when the brothers were finally together wrestling together and it was a very successful film from an 824 production it grossed $40 million, and I expected to do really well over time. I think this is a movie that's going to stand the test of time and get once more people watch it, more eyeballs get to it. It's going to be really heralded as, uh, not, I wouldn't say a cult classic because it's done really well, but it will do so much better than it, it did receptionally, reception-wise in 2023, and I think people will be like, that was a year that, oh, Iron Claw came out that year. It'll be a top five movie you remember from that year. Exactly. You know, obviously, Oppenheimer is the, the most memorable movie from the year, and Barbie, but I think Iron Claw, people will look back and be like, oh yeah, you're right, that's the year Iron Claw came out, and that's such a banger, I can put that on right now. And it is tough sometimes to rewatch dark movies or yeah. tragic movies, like whenever, I've watched Manchester by the Sea twice, and it was tough to put that on the second time. Mm-hmm. I think I would have a little... It'll be it'll be a little easier for me to put on Iron Claw for the second time next time I watch it. It has more entertainment value, yeah. And plus, you know, yeah, a, a little more entertaining. And it's got a little more fun to it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and you do have a good time. It's not like the whole movie's not tragic and pain and trauma and grief. Mm-hmm. There are beautiful moments of Kevin with his family. And and also, even the dad played uh, Jack. He's not always the worst guy in the world. I think he's, you know, I like the opening where it's in back in time a little bit when Jack was doing his wrestling his name was his wrestling name was Fritz von Erich. He was a famous wrestler from the 1960s. He played a very villainous character in the ring in the movie. They changed it a little bit because he played a, a kind of a Nazi type character, and he had this cape that had a symbol on it that sort of was it was like a cross. I think it was a cross. Uh-huh. And he did it on purpose because there was a way to get a lot of attention drawn on him for marketing. Being the bad guy. So he's very yeah. clever in terms of how to get attention drawn on you. A lot of villainous characters in shows and, and especially in wrestling, is, it's always done That's for marketing. That's how The Rock blew up. The Rock was a, yeah. was a villain for so long. Yeah. It happens to a lot of wrestlers. So it's kind of, you could say maybe he pioneered that, being a villain. Not everyone wants to be a villain, but it works really well for marketing and get attention on yourself. He failed to become champion of the NWA, the National Wrestling Association. His, it was his dream become, to become the world heavyweight champion. Never got it. So then obviously he puts that goal and burden in a lot of ways on his children. But I like the opening a lot where we see him when they have nothing. They have no money at all. They're broke and he's wrestling. And mm-hmm. you see the dedication. Great mirroring later on of him in the ring and how he's best and how he's happiest and the energy he provides and how insane he is in the ring and how great he is at it. And then a very calm moment of him on the bench in the locker room where he's just coming down off of the high of fighting. It's very calm moments that happens multiple times to scenes with his sons and just sort of just dealing with the pain of what you just went through and just trying to, it looks like bury the, the trauma of just fighting for a living deep down inside of you. And I like how Sean Durkin opened with that sequence and transitioned into Kevin being right now, like the leader of the kids of wrestling and, the baton has been passed in a way from Fritz to Kevin. And you see in that two first three minutes, he's driving Kevin. He's pushing him really hard. Now, what's, it's the, the, what I found to be one of the most tragic parts about the film is the fam- family dynamic between Fritz and his kids. And it got a couple laughs. There are a couple of good jokes, especially of him pointing out how there's a ranking of the kids. And it seems like it's kind of innocent, but it's really awful. And it's driving this constant comp- competi- competitiveness within the kids, competing against each other, and then the desperate desire 
to seek their father's approval. And the only way they can do that is with wrestling or with greatness, like Kerry, how he was an Olympian. Uh, and then once he was no longer allowed, once he wasn't able to go to the Olympics, the only other way to prove himself to his father is to be a wrestler. You saw it tragically happen to Michael, how he, I mean, not Michael, but uh, yeah, Mike, yeah, yeah Mike, Mike, the, Mike Von Erich. Yeah. The creative one. Yeah, yeah, the creative one who never was really born to be in the ring and wasn't fig physically gifted like the others. He created this competition within the boys, within a, within, amongst one another. And I saw that most strikingly with uh, after David's death and they have the funeral and then uh, it's Kevin and Kerry and Fritz comes out on the porch and you think he's going to say something meaningful, something to help them get over this moment. Their brother just died. They just buried him. They're just sitting there trying to deal with the grief. You think that their son, their father's going to comfort them? Instead, he's he brings up someone still has to wrestle in that match tomorrow. Don't shed a tear for your brother yeah, as well. Yeah, don't shed a tear for him. Someone has to wrestle tomorrow. Who's going to take his place? And you think, okay, you know, Kevin's been the leader in a way. He's he's, he's the eldest. He did fight, but yeah. he also almost blew it. So exactly. you have to remember. So context there. He was he was up in a non belt match, non title yeah. fight, and he almost. Couldn't get up from the ground, almost blew yeah. the shot. And even though he he didn't win the match, but he was entertaining as hell, and Ric Flair really enjoyed fighting with him. Yeah, in his father's eyes, he was too weak. Exactly, great point. That and that's why he chose David over uh, Kevin for the first title match. But what you, what I what I was expecting from that scene was the boys would be like, "Ah, oh, Dad, we can't wrestle." But instead, because of the drive and the competitiveness he drove in them. And their lives were really built upon pleasing him. They didn't hesitate. And not only did they not hesitate, Kevin said, okay, I'll do it. But then Kerry was like, no, I'm going to do it. And then they had a little little argument about it, like a little back and forth about who is going to do this match. And they just buried their brother. And that's all because of how he raised them, where it's all about wrestling. And the relationships he built with them were transactional only. And so they only knew how to be sons to him by being wrestlers basically employees to him so it's a transactional relationship and even if they're not wrestlers you have to be an olympian you can't do what you want like being a musician you have to do something obviously athletic related to even please fritz in, in the slightest way yeah i think that all comes down to what the curse actual it actually is in fritz's control and jack's control of his children and his sons and how it's basically you can say generational trauma, where a lot of people or adults, they fail in their life goals, and they have a lot of trauma and baggage with that. And what do they do? They put it on their children. They decide for their children what their goals are going to be. You're going to be, someone's going to bring home the world championship belt of the NWA. That's my, that was my life goal. That's our family's life goal. And basically, he's having his children live out his dreams and his goal for himself, so that he's, he's almost living vicariously through them in a way. Yeah. He's living through his kids, putting intense pressure on them, putting, forcing them to hide their emotions, hide their feelings. No one gets to hide, show their emotions. Obviously, like you said, Sean Durkin told Zac Efron, you can't, not to cry until the last scene of the movie, despite all the, the pain he goes through. And the, and all this, I think, relates to the curse because is there actually a curse? Is there some sort of supernatural curse? Or is it really just the pressure that their father puts on them, this trauma, this this generational goal of getting the belt at any cost necessary? And it, it gives them so much stress and anxiety. I'm sure it's not in the movie. I'm sure they're pumping steroids to oh, their yeah. bodies like crazy. Yeah. I mean, they're wrestlers in the 80s, so I'm sure they were destroying their bodies. It's sort of a, a mixture of intense discipline and also intense uh, dedication which are great traits to have. However, in this film, they're very self-destructive traits. You know, the discipline, dedication, it leads to self-destructive behaviors. And there's a reason why, you know, four brothers commit suicide in this family. Three in the movie, obviously, but four in real life. It has to do with, obviously, the curse that everyone talks about, but that has to be talked about and related to the father and Von Erich and what he's doing to his kids and the pressure he's putting on them every single day of their life. If they got to do what they wanted to do, None of them would have probably led down a path that led to suicide. You know, drugs and addiction, alcohol, pain, trauma, grief, the pain their bodies put, they put their bodies through every single day of their lives, as well as the intense pressure, the emotional pressure, the baggage of 
trying to live up to your father's expectations, trying to be the favorite son, trying to be accepted by your father, and how only one brother survived this curse and was able to able to come out alive. And I think that's probably why. How did Kevin survive the curse? Probably because he had his own family. He was able to sort of break up with his dad in a lot of ways towards the third act of the film. He's able to go his own path. Him and his dad are fighting. He's sick of his dad. He's going his own separate ways. Even though his father leaves him control of the promotional company, obviously. And he warns him, like, don't you dare sell that company. He's like, I'm going to do what's best for my family. You know, Kevin is the only bo- only brother who survives the Von Eric curse. And you could argue it's because he's the only one that expressed his emotions and had a family. And expressed himself through that family, through Pam, and built it and had his own sons. None of the other brothers had that. They, had not, they all depended on being accepted by their father and staying in their father's spotlight. That's a great point because what I saw when Kevin was with his boys is he treated them in a completely different way than Fritz treated his boys. Fritz avoided affection and love, whereas Kevin was extremely affectionate with his boys and showed them love whenever he was on screen with them. And that was constantly present. And when I finished the film, the way I thought of the curse immediately was the curse was Fritz. Fritz was the curse, and there was no curse. It was was him as a father and him as a patriarch, his horrible nature and his overbearing nature and his dominance. And like you said, if the boys weren't even in wrestling, they'd probably all still be alive. And so I, I looked at it not being as a family curse, but Fritz was the curse on the family. And then it's so great to name the film The Iron Claw because that's the special move of the family. And it's shown so well in the opening scene of Fritz in the Ring. He does the Iron Claw. It's the image of the movie, sort of the tagline of the movie, the Iron Claw. The family move, the brothers all do it. Title of the movie. And it, it kind of relates to Fritz's, it's Fritz's move. It's grip. It's his grip and his control on his entire family. The control, and then when he does it to Kevin in the ring, he's like, "That's not pressure. This is pressure. Mm-hmm. That's a great, you know, in-your-face kind of metaphor of what he's doing to the entire family." That scene when he's practicing in the backyard in the ring with Kevin, that's not pressure. This is pressure. That's what he's doing to his entire family. It's what he's doing to his sons. Yeah, that's a great point right there. Thanks, Absol- man. The grip on the fr- Fritz's grip on the family. He never. That's probably it's why. Unrelenting. It's probably why Durkin named it the Iron Claw. Yeah, it it creates so much pressure on everybody. That, that's an absolutely astounding point. Great job. Thanks, man. Yeah, very smart guy. Thanks. Something, <laughs> something that I love I about my moments. Something that I love about the, the depiction of wrestling in this film is we talked about how how realistic it looks. The actors really showcased uh, a lot of physical talent. Obviously, most notably Zac Efron really committed to this, and he looked really sensational. As he well as, always physically yeah. transforms for his roles intensely. Yeah, and he when you look at the boys' photos in real life, they were they were all very big. Um, obviously a couple of the other guys couldn't get that big in that short amount of time. You need a lot of time to get that large. Also, they Plus probably, the height. Yeah, the height. <laughs> um, but they all looked wonderful in the ring. They all looked excellent. Uh, Jeremy Allen White had a great like somersault flip that he did off a corner. It looked super cool. And I will say, I loved the explanation of, is, isn't wrestling fake? So when he's having his diner date with Pam, she goes, she asks Kevin, isn't it all fake? And he goes, well, I mean... It's not fake, but it's not exactly real. And he explains that wrestling, yes, it's predetermined who's going to win a match, but that doesn't mean that there isn't talent and skill involved in it. And that doesn't mean that the most talented people get rewarded because they do. And it's a great explanation of how he basically says, if you do great work and the crowd loves you, you will rise. You will find success if you have the talent. And that does it, so it means they're not just picking people at random; they're they're moving up the most talented wrestlers. So it is still a skill-based sport in a way, just like any other sport. It's just that yes, the matches are predetermined, but it's determined based upon your talent involved. So it's still very much dependent on each wrestler to find success. And it hurts. It, it hurts, hurts a yeah, lot. Yeah. And people get severely injured in wrestling, and always have. And I, I feel like it's a lot more choreographed now. But I love how in this movie they're backstage. They're about to be do a a tag team a tag ma- a tag team match two on two, 
and they're talking to the other tag team. They're like, all right, we're, we're going to do this, then we're going to do that, then do that. I assume that's what it was like back mm-hmm. then in these independent wrestling arenas and wrestling rings where it's like, you know who's going to win, but let's talk about how we're going to do it versus now. It's very choreographed. They practice a lot of the moves out on each other. So it, it's really interesting to see how dangerous it can be, for example, when Kevin's fighting Ric Flair in the non-title match. It's not for a belt, but it's kind of just in just a fight to promote an upcoming heavy match, heavy heavyweight potential fight against mm-hmm. each other. A and title he, fight. He, 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 a potential title fight, and he gets thrown outside the ring. That's a different fight. So the Ric Flair one is when he grabs his head and keeps gripping it too much. He gets thrown out by that older guy, the other former champion. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. So it's that big Sorry. brawny guy with the beard. He's the one who throws Bruiser. Ke- yeah, Bruiser throws Bruiser. Kevin out the ring and onto the concrete. Sorry guys, I saw this when it came out. Yeah. So No worries. So Ric Flair is when he's <laughs> gripping, gotcha, gripping, gotcha, gotcha. gripping. Yeah. So yeah, well, in that fight, he gets thrown outside the ring mm-hmm. and great filmmaking where you're in Kevin's shoes of what he's feeling in the moment. He can barely it looks like he's paralyzed. He can barely yeah. get up. The wind's probably knocked out of him. He's intense pain, landed on his back, hardly on tarmac, on cement. Obviously it wasn't planned. And he can barely get up, and he has to get up to get in the ring. If he doesn't get in the ring in 10 seconds, he loses the match. And he eventually does, and he still wins the match, but his father's insanely disappointed in him. And him and him and David are in the in the back room, and David's proud of him for winning the fight, but this is where Jack tells David that he's going to do the wrestling match against Ric Flair, the championship fight in Japan at this point. And Kevin can't believe it. Not quite. It. Is, not, it? is no. it not? No, not quite. <laughs> so what's he tell him in the back right here? He just he just says he just berates Kevin for almost losing, and then he's also what he says to Kevin here is he's basically not a showman because David has to, had to take the mic. Oh yeah, he did all the talking. And then for Kevin him. got mad at David for taking the mic, but David's like, you weren't saying anything. Mm-hmm. And then Fritz tells the world that it's David on TV. During one of the matches, to the surprise oh, yeah, of everyone, right. so it's when he, when the four, four of them are, celeb- are celebrating after the the team the team match. Um, so it's not this point that David's really taking spotlight away from Kevin quite yet. Gotcha. Yeah. But I love the shot of them in the back because it's post match. Kevin's a mess. He's got the ice packs all over him. Yeah. It's it's a very similar shot to the silence that his father has when he's in the locker room after his wrestling match in the opening of the film. Yeah, it's a great correlation in the anguish and the pain that they both feel in isolation. And this film, I I was expecting it to feel like The Wrestler, but it didn't. Not at all. At all. And I like that. It it made it its its own mark on the wrestling genre in a lot of ways. And the last great wrestling movie I saw was Fighting With My Family with Florence Pugh, which was fantastic. Great, great film. And then this was just so different. So even in the genre of movies about wrestling, this really sets itself apart. And oh, I, nothing beats Nacho Libre, though. <laughs> Nacho Libre! Nacho! But another great aspect that I love is, we talked about it a little bit, is this was such early days of wrestling. We grew up with WWF and WWE. It was a big entertainment spectacle, a huge company. Very organized. Uh, very, uh, it, made a ton, it makes a ton of money. It was just a huge machine. Very entertainment value, lots of entertainment value, very flashy. Uh, and obviously, very, like everybody, it was like a traveling circus in a way, you know, the way they travel from arena or to arena. It's all very organized. Whereas this, at this time in wrestling, there were multiple organizations, multiple companies, multiple wrestling uh, divisions. And they were all their own little business entities. This is before they started getting purchased and eventually merging together into one wrestling league, essentially. Federation. Federation. <laughs> Federation. Get it right. What's WWE then? World Wrestling Entertainment. <laughs> Entertainment? Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds about right. This And so I like, it reminds me of the early days of MMA in mixed martial arts where, you know, the rules weren't quite, quite in set in place. Like UFC when they UFC. were still wearing geese. Yeah, when they still wearing geese. <laughs> but even before that, in the, in the early 90s when yeah. it was like very few regulations, people were getting hurt. So this it's what this was like. Like you were talking about how they were just like, oh, what should we do for moves? Let's do blah, 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 blah. It's not really that well planned or choreographed. And so I'm sure risk of injury was huge and immense, and, and it was probably extremely painful even if you were a winner of a match. And so I like the bare-bones, small-scale look at the – not exactly the beginnings of wrestling, but as wrestling was growing and becoming popular and beginning to be built up by larger companies – and so I love that aspect. And I had no idea that other divisions even like televised locally 
their fights in their matches. I thought that was really cool to see the world of wrestling on such a small scale. Yeah, it's like when the brothers in the ring talking and David's like talking about, you came to our home, our yeah. turf. Like, this is our promotional entertainment yeah. area. This is our little league or federation of wrestling. And then mm-hmm. obviously it gets left to Kevin by the end of the film and he sells it to set up a better life for his family. And there's a great contrast between Kevin and Jack when their families are broke. When Jack is a wrestler in the 1960s, family's broke. What's he do? He buys a flashy car to try to fit the image of being a wrestler. And then he puts all of, ho- all of his hopes and dreams on his kids as well as this promotional company that he creates. And then what does Kevin do when his family, and he's broke, he's got no money. He's making, he's barely making ends meet. There's four people in a tiny apartment. He doesn't put that pressure on his kids. He figures it out. He sells the company. Sets up a better life for his kids so they can do whatever they want with their lives. And even before that, he lets Pam take the lead. Yeah, and provide. So he's the one. He does the exact opposite of his father. He yeah. doesn't put. He doesn't put his baggage and his goals in the pressure of providing for the family on the future of his family on his kids. I feel like Kevin. The one of one of the best parts of the film is it cuts to when they're broke and he's picking the kids up from school, and you learn. Oh, he's a stay at home dad right now. There's no way Jack Fritz would have ever done that. He would have never. He he was too much of like a absurdly alpha man to say I'm not gonna work and I'm I'm not gonna let my wife do anything. I'm the man of the house. I have to provide. Whereas Jack, I mean, whereas Kevin didn't doesn't have that in him. He's kinder. He's more empathetic and he's more uh, he, he's he's more human. And so when times became tough, he let Pam take control. And she was the breadwinner, and he was a stay-at-home dad. He was picking the kids up from school. He was taking care of them while until she came home from work. Yeah, it wasn't really wrestling anymore. Exactly. Like, he was, you know, taking care of them. There's that scene where she arrives home from work, and she's wiped, and he's like, oh, I'll make dinner. So he became a stay-at-home dad. That's something that his father definitely never would have done. He was still running the company, yeah. So, but he still had a lot of time off mm-hmm. because he wasn't wrestling anymore. So that, that's a great point, and, you know, that was something that Kevin wasn't afraid to do. And then he did set up his family a lot better because the ending of the film in the credits that shows Kevin and his massive family and how big it's grown. And even though he's the only survivor of six boys, yeah, yeah, six boys, because of the fifth son that isn't shown in the film, Chris, he still has a massive, massive family. And it's because he's the survivor of the Von Erich curse. Now, how about we take a break? We're going to head to our intermission, everybody. And we'll come back and talk more about the Iron Claw. This is a deep one, huh? It's a deep episode, but... The best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast, in case you're curious and you want to support our show and help us grow, is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Not only do you get awesome perks like access to the ad-free version of every single episode, but you also get access to our Discord. You get private watch parties. You get custom episodes depending on the tier you are. Every tier of membership gets you more and more perks. There's too many to count. I can't even get into them all, but they're incredible. It's impossible. Another way to support the show is to leave a five-star rating or review on Spotify or Apple. It's a great way for us to be discovered and seen on platforms, as well as at 5,000 Apple ratings, I will be getting a tattoo of Anthony's choosing. It doesn't <laughs> have to be 5,000 reviews, just the ratings. You don't have to write a written review, but I love to read the written reviews out. We're going to do the hot rod tattoo of the kid peeing in no both directions. No way! <laughs> <laughs> That'd be terrible. <laughs> and another great way to support the show is just share us. With your family and friends, if you love the Iron Claw and you're enjoying this episode, send it to anyone you know who saw the Iron Claw or any fans of A24, or just send our show to any fans of movies you know. The best way for a podcast to grow is word of mouth, so spread the word. Spread that word. This episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code RAGERS10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now, they have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. If you like the Iron Claw, get yourself an Iron Claw poster over at MoviePosters.com right now. Don't forget that promo code Raiders10 today. All right, Anthony, let's get into our movie quote. I mean, our intermission and start with the movie quote competition. Let's do it. This is two characters, all right? So pay attention, man. Paying attention. So you want me to be half monk, half hitman? Any thug can kill. I need you to take your ego out of the equation. That is Casino Royale. Yes, it is. Ding, ding, ding. Talking to M. Yes, sir. 
And he thought can kill. <laughs> Alright, here's mine. Why you got to go and say 50 eggs for? Why not 35 or 39 eggs? <laughs> what? Say that again? Why you gotta go and say 50 eggs for? Why not 35 or 39 eggs? I have no idea. Cool hand, Luke. Oh my god. It's a good one. <laughs> oh, that's when he eats 50 eggs in the yeah, prison, right? Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. he's here. No, 100 eggs in prison. It's 50. Is it 50? Oh, okay, yeah, he eats 50 eggs in the prison. And he says, because I thought 50 was a nice round number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good scene. <laughs> that's like, That scene gives me a stomachache just that's watching one of it. My, yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite scenes. It's really funny. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's wondering, he's in prison and he eats 50 hard-boiled eggs. It's intense. <laughs> it's a cool hand. Guess this movie release here, Anthony. Alien 3. Alien Cubed. 1993. Oh, you're so close. 1992. Oh, man. We got two alien things coming out this year. Yeah. Romulus and then a TV show. Yeah, from Noah Holly. We'll see. Alien Romulus I have high expectations for. Me too, man. Me too. All right, what year did Cool Hand Luke come out? Good question. I'm going to say Paul Newman's in his prime in this movie. He's, oh, in, yeah. his, he in, his, he's in his golden god prime. <laughs> he is in a prime. I'm just trying to think like the, what the film, what it looks like. Yeah, the what's stock, it look like, man? The film stock and like yeah. what year it would be. It's either late 60s or early 70s. It's got to be. So I'm going to go 1968. 67. <sighs> so close. So close. Your eyes were like so disappointed. Uh, you were like, right oh, there. You almost got it. <laughs> <laughs> next time, man. Next time. All right, Anthony. Movie pop quiz time. <laughs> Who directed The Player? Oh, Robert Altman, man. Yeah, Robert Altman, son. Figured that'd be too easy for you. <laughs> How many Oscars was Paul Newman nominated for? Four. Ten. Ten. Ten Oscar Jesus. nominations. He won one. Do you know which one he won for? He won for... He won an Oscar for The Hustler. The sequel to The Hustler. Oh, Color, Color of Money. Money. That's right. Yes. I can't believe he only had one Oscar. I know, right? So many great performances. Ten nominations. All timer is crazy. Ten, ten. Woo! All right. Who we got for haters this week? Any unsubscribes? What do we got? Oh, yeah, we how got are we cooking? We cooking? Anything good? So on our Dune movie ticket giveaway promo, Curtis Henry wrote. Also, congratulations to all the winners. Yeah, congrats. He wrote. He sent us his name and email, like everyone else who entered, and he said, "If I don't win, I'll unsubscribe." Jk, jk, jk. I know you won't, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> Michaela Lockhart in our Tarantino movie ranking episode wrote 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 you're cracking a lot this episode man I'm just so nervous no recognition for Pulp Fiction's amazing soundtrack unsubscribe when the Tarantino episode yeah we didn't even I don't think we mentioned the soundtrack at all we did not but we did we an did entire not. episode we talked about it for like a half hour oh yeah soundtrack. Michaela have you checked out our, our Pulp Fiction episode it's epic Michaela. It's two and a half hours it's a great one it's one, of my, it's one of my favorites we've ever done I think you like it Next up, Harrison YT80 wrote, We need a Taxi Driver vs. Joker vs. King of Comedy video. Unsubscribed! Taxi Driver vs. Joker vs. King of Comedy. That would be a good episode. Yeah. It's pretty, it's we close did do to Taxi our, Driver vs. Joker. It was one of our, our first episodes, episodes we yeah. ever did. Yeah, episode one. 7, actually. Episode 7, nice. Episode 7. Fuck yeah. Natalie wrote, Wait, no, I did this last time. It's not Goldilocks. You both said that last time Twisters got brought up. It's Dorothy! Not Goldilocks. That was unsubscribe. You. That was Anthony. For the second... And she wrote, unsubscribe for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> can't get it right. Oh my god, back to back. Alright, next up we have Team Na. One. No airplane. No Caddyshack. Unsubscribed in our 1980s episode. Yeah. Actually, never watched you guys before. Pretty solid list as I experienced these movies live. Yes, I'm old. Great job. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm feeling old too, pal. I'm, I'm an right era to grow up in those '80s, watching those '80s movies in theaters. That's cool. That was a great list of movies. Very cool. That's it for our unsubscribes. All right, we have a great five star review in Apple Podcasts from the Great Cuban Hope. He wrote the best, or they wrote the best. I've tried to listen to several film podcasts. James and Anthony are by far the best. Their love for movies shines through in every episode. 
they strike a perfect balance of discussing current film news, reviewing all of the latest films, while also revisiting a ton of older films. Keep up the great work, guys. Great Cuban hope. Thank you so much. Thanks, pal. That was a great like description of our podcast. Know, right? That was that was we nice. Should, we should steal we that, lift put that. In, put it in our bio. Yeah, put it in the <laughs> Apple bio. <laughs> Summed it perfectly. All right, Anthony, what is your streaming recommendation for this episode? There's a really cool uh, sci-fi film called Life that just got put on Prime with Jake Gyllenhaal, Rebecca Ferguson, and Ryan Reynolds. It's a cool horror movie. I like it a lot. It's a great ending. Amazing ending. I selected High Life, which is on Max. Wow, look at us. Robert Pattinson, directed by Claire Denis. Look at us with our sci-fi horror movies. I know, right? Not bad. Pretty cool, man. That movie's... We saw that in theaters. That was a trippy movie. That was a cool movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed Jul- it. That Juliette Binoche scene. Oh, my God. It's intense. <laughs> in it's the intense. room. <laughs> All right. Let's get back into our episode on the Iron Claw. And how about we go through each brother yes. in a little bio and about how they passed away. Okay. So, obviously, Kevin's the only one who survived. The first brother in the film who technically dies chronologically is Jack Von Eric who we don't see until the beautiful afterlife sequence after Carrie commits suicide, which is one of my favorite scenes of the entire year of 2023 when Carrie commits suicide, and then he goes into this sort of afterlife heaven sequence, and he joins Jack, David, and Mike in this heaven area. It's yeah, I loved, really beautiful. Yeah, I loved him sitting on the, the small boat, just crossing through that river. Beautiful dusk lighting, and then just the brothers being so happy to be together. They're free of their burdens, and even David is champion in the afterlife. <laughs> and great. also, it's the first time that Carrie meets Jack, mm-hmm. his technically his older brother who died when he was six years old. He says, "You must be my brother, Jack," and picks him up. And it's it's really I've never seen anything like it before. It was really yeah. creative, and I, but also simple at the same time. I thought it was really beautiful. Now Jack Van Eric, firstborn of the Von Eric family died at the age of six after being electrocuted by a shorted wire on a neighbor's trailer and then drowning in a puddle. Insanely tragic accident. My God. Terrible, terrible, terrible. This poor mother. I know. And then we know David Von Erich was the next one to die. He had that championship fight in Japan that he was supposed to do. His father picked him over Kevin to go to Japan and do the championship fight against Ric Flair, correct? Yes. And he died in his hotel room in the bathroom. He had a ruptured intestine. And obviously they hinted at this in the wedding scene Mm -hmm. after Pam and Kevin get married. And then they're celebrating, they're dancing. And then Kevin finds David in the bathroom stall, puking up blood, spitting up blood. And they laugh it off like, don't worry, I'm going to be okay. This is nothing. This is nothing. This is fine. Which is obviously a representation of their father overbearing over them not to show their feelings, to hide all their pain, and basically not really care about stuff like that. Never show weakness in front of him, Exactly. Ever. And I love the wedding scene. I, cr- I think everybody like cracked up a little bit because Zach's such a great dancer, and he's clearly the most comfortable dancer on the in that floor of the brothers and, and Pam. But he's like trying to look like he's not a good dancer. Yeah. <laughs> he's a really, really good dancer. <laughs> so that's how David Von Erich died. Next up, we have Mike died next. Yes. So Mike was the fourth Von Erich's son, right? Number fifth. Fifth. Yeah. Fifth Von Erich's yeah. son. He's the youngest in the movie. He's the artistic one. He plays music, sings, wants to play guitar. He's a lot more creative. He's really interested in video editing and camera angles and stuff like that, which his father says, you know, you stop caring about camera angles, just care about the wrestling. And... Actually, a a factual correction, not a correction, but in real life, the movie makes it seem like Mike only starts wrestling due to David's death and Carrie's amputation. The real Mike actually made his ring debut in 1983 before both events happened, but it's better for the storytelling purposes to make it seem like Mike is kind of just trying to take up the mantle for the family after Carrie's accident. So Mike, as a wrestler, also went into a deep depression. You know, he never felt like he lived up to the family name and uh, suffered. He had a serious shoulder injury. Goes into surgery, like in the film, and enters a coma after getting a 107-degree fever, which is insanely dangerous. He ended up getting brain damage from the 107-degree fever while he was in his coma and got toxic shock syndrome. And the film does a great job depicting what happened to him, his mental state. Obviously, those scenes with his mother when they're alone together. And then the press conference was shot really pretty much exactly how the press conference in real life actually went and he ended up overdosing on purpose via suicide, a bunch of painkillers or pain medication, as well as drinking a beer, and then just sitting in his bed with his blanket. Then he gets found in the field in the morning by his brothers. This movie has several just shocks that made me and I, I heard the audience gasp 
just from like this uh, broken collarbone, and then all of a sudden he's in a coma. It's like so unbelievably shocking. It just took the the air out of me. Kind of just a straightforward surgery. You yeah. think that it, oh he'll be fine? I did not see that coming at all. Mm -hmm. The next brother to die was Carrie Von Eric. Obviously, we just talked about he was really the last one in the movie to be seen killed and committed suicide because then he had the afterlife sequence where he was reunited with his other brothers who had already passed away. Carrie was the favorite son. He was the Olympic athlete, but obviously his Olympic dreams were taken away when the Olympic Games were shut down and America didn't go to the Olympics. And while in the movie... It makes it seem like Carrie Von Eric lost his foot the night he won the NWA title from Ric Flair. In actuality, there was a two-year gap. He won the title in May of 1984 in the motorcycle accident that resulted in his amputation. It was 1986, but again, better for storytelling. Let's just do it right away. And I was so shocked at the amputation of his leg. I thought he was going to die. I, I assumed he was going to crash his bike because mm -hmm. he just won the title. He's drinking some beers to celebrate. He's clearly unhinged right now. Even though he's won the title, he seems off. He seems not happy about it. And the way Sean shot it, too. Yeah, and I love the scene after he wins when he's home because he's won the title. He's finally brought the belt home. This is all the family's ever cared about. And, like, everyone just doesn't know how to feel about it. There's no big celebration. The family's not all celebrating together. They're not all partying. They're not all happy. No one seems happy about it. If anything, the only one that anyone feels anything is Kevin probably seems jealous because mm -hmm. he wasn't the one to do it first. But no one really is happy about it. And you would think that Kerry would be happy about it. But he's not. And he's drinking. He takes his bike for a spin. Cuts to him in the morning. Doesn't show the crash or anything. We assume. Like, I figured, like, there's no way he didn't crash. Yeah. And then he gets out of bed. Struggles out of bed. It just seems like, oh, maybe he's hungover. Or maybe he hurt himself I figured maybe crash. he broke his leg or yeah. something from the crash. That's what I was assuming. And then there's that shot. The static camera shot in the kitchen. Where he, he limps into the kitchen. And he's got one foot. And I was just so shocked by this moment i i gasped out loud i put my hands over my mouth i, I was mouth agape dropped chin on the floor it was insane yeah. that was another one of the gasping moments so carrie also went to intense depression got involved with uh abusing drugs painkillers alcohol and even though he did become the internet intercontinental champion he was able to overcome his, his amputation and still fought and wrestled with one foot with prosthetic effectively becoming an intercontinental champion just being just shows you how incredible of an athlete these guys were like these are they're incredible he's able to compete with just one foot in an ampute with an amputated leg he ended up shooting himself in the chest right in the heart on in his father's house obviously in the movie it's in the backyard and Kevin shows up just minutes after in the film and finds him and he also left a note like he did in the movie that through death, he believed that he would be reunited with his brothers. Awful. It's so tragic. Now, Kevin's the last one. Yeah. Now there's a, obviously, as you mentioned, you pointed out all the differences from reality. Um, not including Chris Von Eric, changing the course of events, timeline a little bit, and sometimes a lot. The thing is, movies have to do that. If he, if if Sean Durkin made it exactly how it happened, it's a documentary, right? And less engaging. Yeah. So, you, in order to dramatize the story, it's basically Sean Durkin has to tell his version of the story, and in an adaptation of a nonfiction story, the characters are going to say things they never said in real life. The characters are going to do things they never said did in real life, um, and that's drama. That's storytelling. If people aren't satisfied by things not being being left it out or being the timeline not working the way it did in real life, then that's not real. That's not drama. That's just a documentary if you want to do it exactly how it happened. So Sean Durkin taking the liberties to weave the story together in different ways. Another major one is uh, Mike Wade delaying his entry into the into the ring. That way we get to learn more about his character and how he differs from the family. And then it also put us into, like, we felt like when he started wrestling, like, he shouldn't be wrestling. You know, I felt that as an audience member. Like, Mike shouldn't be in the ring because I knew so much about him. But if they start out the film with Mike there, Kevin there, Carrie there, and David there, it wouldn't have worked the same way. And so Sean Durkin did a wonderful job of slightly modifying the realities because he's creating a drama out of it. And for that reason, it worked 
so much better than if he did it if he just did the Wikipedia page. And also, I read an interview with Kevin, the real Kevin Von Erich, and he talks about, you know, he loved the movie. They, he thought they did a great job, and Derek did a great job. But he also says that, you know, his father wasn't that much of a tyrant. He wasn't like the tyrant displayed in the film. Yeah. And he says it's fine if that's what they have to do. He understands the process of making films, and you can leave the movie believing his father was a tyrant, but he also said his father was a great guy. And, you know, he instilled discipline on them. He was hard on them. But also, you know, he wasn't as hard as he's depicted in the film. Is is sort of like an antagonist, an opposing force in almost every scene, except for a few moments of brevity. The opening is a great shot of the father. He seems like a, a great guy, a great dad. He's yeah. obviously, you know, pushing his family and maybe not setting themselves, the family up for the best future, but he seems like he cares about his family. If Fritz was a more congenial man and more uh, open and, and a nicer man, conflict wouldn't be there. Yeah, because Fritz in the film, after each of the boys' deaths, he sort of just closes up. I'm not obviously it's, we don't I don't know what it was really like in real life for him after his. Brothers, after his sons passed, one by one by one, yeah, I'm sure it was horrible, and he, he went through intense grief over it. But the film usually depicts him as sort of, well, it was his time, but we just have to stay. It was God took him. We have to stay true to our beliefs, and we have to, you know, we have to keep pushing forward. Yeah, we can't let this this moment define us as a family. I feel like Sean could have made him worse. Yeah, but he, I think he told the line. Obviously, he's the driving conflict within the boys and within the story, but. I think that he still restrained himself from making him a fully fledged like movie villain. Yeah, you know what I mean. He it could have been way harsher. So between the years of 1984 and 1993, four von Erich brothers died. Three are depicted in the film. So obviously David died suddenly from enteritis. Then Carrie, Mike died of suicide, and then there's another brother who died of suicide. It was not in the film. Chris. Now, he was not depicted in the film, but he also died in 1991 in a 2023 interview with IndieWire. Sean Durkin spoke about why Chris Von Erich is not depicted in the film. And Sean Durkin said, he was in it for a long time, not just a draft. For years, I wrote the script for seven years, and Chris was part of it for maybe five of those years. It's really hard on a human level to look at them as characters on the page because they were real people. But at some point, as a writer and a filmmaker, you have to say... If I step away and look at it as characters on a page and look at it as a film, there's just a repetition to the deaths of Carrie and Von Erich and Mike Von Erich and then Chris, that they all have died in the same way where they either took a gun or pills out into a field and killed themselves. To try and fit the story, which had so much more tragedy even besides that, another tough one was that David Von Erich was a parent and his daughter died when she was a year old. So another curse that's not depicted in the film. There's just so much tragedy in this family that a film just couldn't sustain it. I ultimately took it out because it seemed like it was the difference between the film getting made or not, including Chris was clearly throwing off the rhythm of the film, the weight of the film, and the focus of the film, which was trying to be which was trying to be about Kevin Von Erich's survival, but was getting lost in the amounts of tragedy. I had to find that balance because to make that screenplay work on a level that made it a workable film. That makes a lot of sense. It would have been, especially if they depicted. David and his family and his daughter, it would have been unrelenting and it would have been overwhelming, not just to the audience, but to the, to the story. And it, it not so much repetitive, but it would have just been like, it, what is the story about? Is it, we're just seeing death after death after, after death. Whereas his, like you just said, his approach and his direction for the story was Kevin's survival, which would have been taken, would have taken the back seat if he depicted every tragedy in the family. It would have just been a compilation of, yeah, of tragedies exactly. and suicides. Yeah. So I understand from a writing perspective and a filmmaking perspective why he took Chris Von Erich out. And he basically said he sort of put Chris Von Erich and Mike Von Erich sort of into the same character. Uh-huh. Because in real life, Chris Von Erich was not physically gifted like his brothers were. Even in real life, Mike was physically gifted. All the brothers were massive. They're all tall, mm-hmm. very strong guys. But Chris, he had... A couple, he was born with a couple deficiencies. He wasn't as big. He wasn't as strong. He wasn't as athletic as his brothers. He was sort of just like a, a, a hype man, kind of just like a, uh-huh. a kind of unofficial manager with them and just hanging out with them and being a part of the family, of course. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't a physical talent or physical phenom like some of his other brothers were. That makes a lot of sense. And again, if it was, it's not a documentary, so it's okay to make these changes. Now, it's been a very grim series of discussions so far, but there is a lot of brevity in the film. 
And some of my favorite moments of lightness, of humor, of kinship, and of love, uh, I think the the diner date with Dan, with Pam is really sweet. Very sweet. What do you want out of life? More ribs? More ribs. I like how she's the one who basically asks herself out by telling him to ask her out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really sweet. I love the first time they had sex, and she learned he was a virgin when she got on top of him in the car. And, she's like, and he's super nervous, and she's like, oh, is, is this your, your first time? He's just doesn't. He's too like embarrassed to say anything, and then that kind of like excites her. She's like, "Oh, baby, <laughs> <laughs> I like hey, the, just a baby." <laughs> I like when they sneak out of the house to go to uh, Mike's band's gig at yeah, the house party. I love that scene. And then you, that's Ke- also the night that they have sex. Yeah, that's the night they they get in the car. Uh, Carrie's doing a keg stand, and he's like, "So, what do you think about my family? I love your family." Bam, uh, Lily James is great with the Southern Belle. She's done it a few times now. Yeah. She's she's really excellent at it. Uh, there are a lot of great moments of of brotherhood. I love the wedding before obviously David has his issue in the bathroom, uh, but the wedding's really sweet. The dance number they all do, the choreographed dance on the floor, the the five of them do, just really sweet. So there's a lot of great moments of a family of brotherhood. I love when they're kicking ass in the ring. Yeah, it's great a lot violation, of fun. great montage of yeah. them just rising the ranks and beating up everybody and just like. Being great athletes out there, and that's a lot of fun. Yeah, there is so much. And Sean Durkin did a great job balancing the drama and the tragedy with uh, excitement, with humor, uh, with levity, and with just good old fashioned entertainment. It's dark, though. It is dark. It yeah, is dark. It's still but dark. Yeah. This movie got me. I really, really enjoyed it. I haven't watched it a second time, and obviously, we saw it. Way back when it came out. Was that December when December, this movie came out? Yeah, it's December 12th we saw it. Holy crap, it's yeah. been a while. We yeah. got that early screening, man. Yeah, that was, that was a great experience. And then, I mean, the theater was excellent as well. But, man, I really love this movie. It's in my, I think it might be a top five for me last year. I really loved it. Definitely top ten for sure. Yeah. But last year was a very strong year for cinema. It really was. Oh, it was an excellent year. Yeah. And I got to say, everybody knocked it out of the park. And... Man, I do wish that it got some more love from the academies, and I'm not sure why, but I do think that our theories could be correct if it came out at a different time, if it came out 10 years ago. It's not culturally within the world of movie culture and communities the kind of story that's really hitting the voters right now. And when we talk about the academy, it's not like it's like 20 people inside of a room voting. It's you know actors, directors, writers, cinematographers... You know, every facet of filmmaking, uh, all these kinds of people vote on the movies. So I think within the world of the community, the the, the film community world, it wasn't quite their vibe, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. there are, Again, there are a lot of great movies from yeah, 2023. There are. This year, it, if it came out in 2024, I think it would have been a Best Picture nominee. Oh, af- oh, it would be a huge movie if it came out this year yeah, because I, there's I not think, much competition at all. Yeah, the competition is pretty stark. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when a Scorsese movie comes out, a Nolan movie comes out, those are going to get Best Picture nominations right now, especially yeah. for how good they were. So it, it's tough, you know. There's a lot of great movies. It, is a, it was a great year. It was a really great year, 2020. Even though a lot of movies got moved, it still was stellar. Yeah, I mean, Anatomy of a Fall. Great international cinema Holdovers. last year as well. Yeah, man. Yeah, because, I mean, we're supposed to get freaking a Bong Joon-ho movie this year, but we're not anymore, so yeah. the and, door opened up for Best Picture yeah. nomination for this year. And I, it's, every year, I think there's a, a great film that gets overlooked. And last year, the year before, in 2022, it was Decision to Leave from yeah. Park Chan-wook got no Oscars attention at all. That's he, a good point. I think he was the best director of 2022 without question. Absolute snub. Best director. Not even best international film yeah, nominee. It didn't, yeah, it didn't even get nomination for international feature, so... Decision to Leave was the the Iron Claw of 2022 that it should have gotten a lot of love, but it didn't. Sort of a head scratcher. Yeah, I'm still unsure. I don't know what happened there. I mean, at least cinematography. At least looks terrific. At least directed. It really is. Within five minutes, I'm like, this is one of the best shot movies of the year. Yeah. Maybe the last two years. It really is. 100%. It's a special. I think it's a special movie. And I, w- I mean, I would have been really satisfied if Iron Claw got cinematography. It's that well shot. Yeah, me too. And I think that, like, if anything gets shot on film, it gives it a leg up. It's so... Yeah. We, when this, I saw this on the big screen. You see the texture, you see the grain, you see the colors, you see the depth to it, the 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 dynamic range. Uh, there's so it's, I I find film when it's well shot to be so beautiful, and no, even the best shot digital cinematography. And this is just my personal opinion, pales in comparison to well shot film. And I just think it's 
so timeless in its aesthetic and so beautiful. And the, the nominees for the Oscars for cinematography right now are for Hoyt Van Hoytema for Oppenheimer, Ed Lackman for El Conde, Rodrigo Prieto for Killers of the Flower Moon, Matthew Libatique for Maestro, and Robbie Ryan for Poor Things. So those are the five nominations. That's for, a tough list. It's actually, yeah, it's tough it's to enter that. List. Those are all great. Even El Conde was really wonderful looking. Matthew Libatique, I could see him winning. Dude, I mean, Maestro? Maestro looked incredible. Oh my, I, I don't understand everybody making fun of Maestro at all. Maestro is stellar. See, everybody online is making fun of it. Movie looks, what are they saying? The cinema, like getting nominated is a joke for anything. Even what? Cine, even cinematography. It looks so good. People were making fun of the cinematography of it. I was like, Do you understand cinema? Do you oh understand my god! Who, have you ever seen a movie? <laughs> I was like, Holy shit! Ma- Maestro is incredible. It's so sounds, well yeah. shot. Oh my god! I Matthew was... Libatique might be the most underrated cinematographer alive. He is absolutely. Yeah. He is. He is a fucking all time cinematographer. He's, all time. He's really terrific. All time. Wow. The fucking disrespect. Put some respect on Libatique's name, We man. love you, Matthew Libatique. Yeah, if you're listening, Matthew Libatique, we're huge you're fans. You're a cool dude. You're a cool guy. <laughs> I saw you do an interview. Oh, yeah, you saw Pi in IMAX. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I saw him. He did a Q&A up front. They with... went to film school together, right? Him and Aronofsky. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. shot... They shot... Uh, that... Well, that's what that movie was, basically. Like, it was his, like, film school project. Like, yeah, post-film school. Like, mm-hmm. it was... It was he, they made it right after film school. Fucking It was, like, that. no fucking money. It was 16 mil. Yeah. Black and white, like why the fuck not? Crazy. And Libatique's like, if we made it with a budget, it would not be as cool or yeah. as good. Like I wouldn't have made it. He's like, I only made it look that cool because we had no money, so we just had to like get insanely creative. Speaking basically. of, he shot the wrestler. Good point. Yeah, Libatique's a beast. He is a beast. But beast all these man. other movies deserve nominations yeah. as well. I mean, all timers here. Hoyt, I could see him winning for sure. It's actually Hoyta. I learned at the Q and A. Hoyta. 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 Sorry, Hoyt. So soft tees. Hoyta. Hoyta. Yeah. Sorry, Hoyta. Sorry, Hoyda. We love you. Huge fans. Huge. No one else throws that IMAX camera on their shoulder like you. <laughs> you got anything else in the Iron Claw? Um, I just think it's a really excellent film. And I think it's going to stand the test of time. I think over time it's going to be well-received and looked at as one of the best films of 2023. Yeah, I'm tapped out. Tapped? Oh. Get it? Oh, I see. Get it? You see what I did there? I see what you did I'm there. tapping man. out because wow. that's all I got on this sensational film from Sean Durkin. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Don't forget to become a don't forget to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Leave those five star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as share us with your family and friends. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keene, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs. Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.